is Our American Stories, and it's time for our weekly first job segment, where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans alike about their very first jobs, what it was, what they learned, how it helped them get to where they are today, and oftentimes funny stories from that first job. And if you have a first job story, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there. Or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. Today's story is about Shahid Khan, an immigrant from Pakistan who is now a billionaire, thanks to this country and the opportunity it gave him, which he's since spread to more people, employing over 13,000 Americans at his company Flexengate, which we'll hear about more later. He also owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. Not bad for an immigrant. In this first clip, which we got from Forbes and some of the terrific interviews they conduct there, we learn that he's 16 years old and decides to attend the University of Illinois. This is back in 1967. And when he arrives, he arrives in the middle of a blizzard. Indeed, it's the first time he's ever seen snow. And walking through that snow in Champaign, Illinois, to the local YMCA, his shoes start falling apart, was he ever wondering whether he'd just made, at this moment in his life, a big mistake? It was, you know, I'd never experienced anything like this. And uh, the feeling you get when snow kind of permeates your shoes um, and you go through the socks, I mean, I have that to this day (laughs) where I'm hardwired, I can sense something like that. But, uh, and... It, you know, you're so tired, you kind of just go to sleep. And it was like, I can't believe this happened, but uh, there's got to be a pony somewhere. Yeah, there's, uh, there ha- and next day, uh, you know, when I got up, they were kind of clearing the snow, and uh, I looked at the money I had. Some of that was gone. I said, <laughs> they were hiring dishwashers uh, up the street at buck twenty an hour. And I said, you know, this can really, this is going to be great. And so I got a job, and I was washing dishes literally the next day and thinking, my God, what a great country, Uh, because I am making more than 99.9% of the people in Pakistan. And then money is not something like you're holding a melting ice cube that's kind of going away. You're able to replenish it with work. So so within 24 hours, I mean, I had really, you know, I've kind of discovered the American dream. There's got to be a pony somewhere. I just love that. I love that attitude. So he graduates at 21 with a mechanical engineering degree. While at Champaign at the University of Illinois, he meets his bride. But this was a pretty tough time economically, even for a guy with an engineering degree. And remember, he's an immigrant from Pakistan, so he has to hit the pavement. Let's take a listen to more. Uh, you know, in the 70s when there was no connectivity, obviously, uh, email or how you got your resume out. I mean, I literally, I went door to door because, um, you know, I was a foreign student, but you could work legally in those days for 18 months. Uh, and I would start off in the morning uh, just going door to door industrial parks and what have you. And I did that for several months. Uh, and then uh, one day, uh, this blacksmith shop, of all places in Urbana, uh, was looking for somebody to come in and do everything. Uh, uh, weld, grind, and, you know, I was able to get the job. 
At the blacksmith he worked for, they designed custom trucks for farmers, one-offs. Shahid says that's how trucks were sold in those days, and they used to weld all these parts together. And the owner, who was a farmer, asked himself, could they do this better? Shahid came up with the idea of using stamping presses to make a one-piece uniform bumper. It looked a lot better. You didn't have the seams from welding. It lasted a lot longer, and it had a lot lower cost. And from that one idea, the owner said that he made more money in one year than the 40 years he worked in the field as a farmer and decided that he needed to sell the business. Then in 1978, when the second energy crisis hit the auto industry, Shahid decided that the real market opportunity was selling direct to the car makers, and he started his own company. He started out by employing just one other person. The auto industry was not very receptive to smaller companies. And they would look at designs and they say, okay, we'll pay you and, uh, you know, use some of those. But uh, uh, GM was coming up with a small truck. This is in 78 because the energy crisis had hit. And I had a, they had missed the weight target and the guy uh, was about to get fired. So at a, as a really act of desperation, he said, okay, you know, I'm going to buy this design, authorize GM to buy the design, so we can lower the inertia weight, show better fuel efficiency, and save the program. Uh, and except they couldn't make the part. And uh, then they turned to me and said, okay, you know, if we give you a purchase order, will you be able to do it? And, I mean, I'll never forget it. you got to remember, I mean, this in the 78, GM was probably close to 5% of the GDP of America. And there you have it. What a story. And, by the way, soon after that purchase order from GM, and what a big deal to get that first purchase order, every new company is dying to land that big one from General Motors or IBM or some big company because that's how you grow into a bigger company yourself. He went from one employee to 53, and now has 13,000. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our weekly first job segment, Immigrant Shahid Khan's story. He started as a dishwasher, was hired on his second day in this country, making $1.20 an hour. He thought that was just dandy. He was making more than 99% of the people where he'd just come from, Pakistan. And he said that this money wasn't like a melting ice cube. It was something he could replenish through work. He discovered his American dream within 24 hours of being an American. This is Lee Habib. And again, this is Our American Stories. You want a prediction about the weather, you're asking the wrong film. 
I'll give you a winter prediction. It's going to be cold. It's going to be gray. And it's going to last you for the rest of your life. This is our American stories. And that's Groundhog Day. That's Bill Murray. And every time that song came up, Sonny and Cher's I Got You, Babe, it just got funnier and funnier. And today on this day in history, and we're doing a couple today, because some days there are just a couple of good stories. We celebrate Groundhog Day, first referenced in 1841 on this day in history. And, well, we wanted to know where the story came from, the traditions. So we put faith to the task, and here's what she came up with. Groundhog Day is nationally observed on February 2nd. Attached to its history is a story of folklore. Folklore being the traditional beliefs, customs, and stories of community passed through the generations by word of mouth. Now, before all the folklore of Groundhog Day, February 2nd was known as Candlemas, a Christian holiday, also known as the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord Jesus. It is meant to commemorate the presentation of Jesus at the temple and the purification of the Virgin Mary. During this day, candles were blessed and distributed during a worship service, or brought to the church to be blessed and then used for the rest of the year. Also, oftentimes, clear skies on Candlemas meant a longer winter. There's some foreshadowing for you, pun intended. This tradition started with the Romans, who then brought it to the Germans, who then brought it to Pennsylvania. Sadly, much of the Christian tradition had lost its prominence, and February 2nd became centered around weather prediction. The German settlers had concluded that if a hedgehog appeared on Candlemas and cast a shadow, there would be a second winter. With them came the legend of Candlemas Day, which reads, For as the sun shines on Candlemas Day, so far will the snow swirl in May. For as the snow blows on Candlemas Day, so far will the sun shine before May. So, the story goes that the celebration of Groundhog Day began with the earliest German settlers in Pennsylvania. They had then come to believe that the hedgehog had the power to predict the coming of spring. They watched the hedgehogs to know when to plant their crops. Now, by the time the first German immigrants settled in Pennsylvania, they probably realized an animal popping up from the ground cannot predict the weather. But the tradition continued. Unfortunately, there were not many hedgehogs in Pennsylvania. It was then substituted for, you guessed it, the groundhog. This celebration all takes place in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, a small town of about 5,000, 80 miles northeast of Pittsburgh. Now, the name for the succession of groundhogs that live there to predict the weather are called Punxsutawney Phil Sowerby. These little guys have been giving their prognostications for over 130 years. The legendary first trip to Gobbler's Knob, the home of Punxsutawney Phil Sowerby, was taken in 1887. It is said that when a Phil appears from his burrow and doesn't see his shadow, then spring will come early. However, if the groundhog emerges to see his shadow and scuttles back down, then winter will last for another six weeks. Most people are familiar with Groundhog Day due to the 1993 film starring Bill Murray. Now let's take a quick detour for a moment to talk about the film. Murray plays selfish and grumpy weatherman Phil Connors of Channel 9, who has been assigned to go to Punxsutawney to cover the events of the groundhog. His attitude about it is, 
let's just say less than apathetic. After a half-hearted report that a coming winter storm will pass, he is found to be wrong. The storm does come, and he finds himself stuck in Punxsutawney, with all the hicks as he says. But not only is he stuck in the town, he is stuck repeating the same exact day over and over again. That day is February 2nd. Karma had perhaps caught up to him, and it was time he learned to change his self-centered ways. After realizing that his actions had no consequences, due to the fact that the next morning he woke up restarting the same day, he participates in one-night stands, commits suicide, and even learns to play the piano. Which, of course, all seems fun. At first. But not surprisingly, becomes, well, repetitive. Needless to say, Connors becomes sick of this one-day cycle, and he tries to tell his news producer, Rita, who at this point he had fallen in love with. I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. I don't think. Because you survived a car wreck? You folks ready to order? I didn't just survive a wreck. I wasn't just blown up yesterday. I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted, and burned. Oh, really? And every morning I wake up without a scratch on me, not a dent in the fender, I am an immortal. Why are you telling me this? Because I want you to believe in me. You're not a god. You can take my word for it. This is 12 years of Catholic school talking. How do you know I'm not a god? <laughs> oh, please. How do you know? Because it's not possible. Doris. This is Doris. Her brother-in-law, Carl, owns this diner. She's worked here since she was 17. More than anything else in her life, she wants to see Paris before she dies. Oh, boy, what a... What are you doing? This is Debbie Kleiser and her fiancé, Fred. Do I know you? They're supposed to be getting married this afternoon, but Debbie is having second thoughts. What? Lovely ring. This is Bill. He's been a waiter for three years since he left Penn State and had to get work. He likes the town, he paints toy soldiers, and he's gay. I am. What about me, Phil? Do you know me, too? I know all about you. You like producing, but you hope for more than Channel 9 Pittsburgh. Well, everyone knows that. You like boats, but not the ocean. You go to a lake in the summer with your family up in the mountains. There's a long wooden dock and a boathouse with boards missing from the roof. And a place you used to crawl underneath to be alone. You're a sucker for French poetry and rhinestones. You're very generous. You're kind to strangers and children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. How are you doing this? I told you, I wake up every day, right here, right in Punxsutawney, and it's always February 2nd, and there's nothing I can do about it. If you still can't believe me, listen, in in 10 seconds, Larry is going to come through that door and take you away from me, but you can't let him. Larry. Please believe me. You've got to believe me. So... How did Phil Connors break the cycle? He changed his ways. He was kind and thoughtful and even helped save an old homeless man's life. And that was when he woke up on February 3rd. After the film, there was some controversy about how long weatherman Phil Connors of Channel 9 was stuck in this time loop. Some say two weeks. Buddhists believe that it must have been 10,000 years for him to pass from one life to the next with some heart change. 
experts decided it just had to undo his life of selfishness that he had previously led. So about 30 to 40 years of repeating the same day. That's between 10,950 and 14,600 days. One would hope that after cycling through the same day that many times, he would eventually learn to write his ways. So the film was sending a message. Just like Punxsutawney Phil's prognostications are meant to show a shift and change in the weather, so Phil Connors needed some shift in attitude and personality. The film became a cult classic, even being added to the United States National Registry of Film, meaning it is culturally, historically, aesthetically significant. It made the name Punxsutawney Phil a national cultural reference in the U.S. Punxsutawney still has a gathering every year held by the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club, which was established in 1887. A select group called the Inner Circle takes care of Phil year-round and also plans the annual ceremony. Members of the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club's Inner Circle are recognizable by their top hats and tuxedos. Crowds as many as 40,000 have gathered in this little town to witness this event. However, if you can't get there, don't worry. It is webcasted for those who can't make it. There are also other gatherings held across the country. They just won't have Punxsutawney Phil Sowerby, which, according to the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club, Punxsutawney Phil is the only true weather forecasting groundhog. The others, they're just all imposters. This is Our American Stories. Great job, Faith, on that. And Groundhog Day on this day in history back in 1841 was, well, it's the first time it was ever referenced that way. The first time we ever used those words around that day and this day. And this day in history, as always, is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu for all of their great courses. This is Our American Stories. I got you, babe. They say our love won't pay the rent Before it's earned, our money's all been spent I guess that's so we don't have a pot But at least I'm sure of all the things we got This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about music, and we also love telling stories about history, and on this day in American history, well, we've got a story for you today, but before we get into the story, I just wanted to say that all of our This Day in Histories are brought to you by Hillsdale College, and it's the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life, philosophy, art. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for so many of their brilliant courses. And now, well, it's time you hear a story you may have heard in passing, yet you may have forgotten the unforgettable details. 
It is odd to watch with what feverish ardor Americans pursue prosperity. Ever tormented by the shadowy suspicion that they may not have chosen the shortest route to get it. They cleave to the things of this world as if assured that they will never die. And yet rush to snatch any that comes within their reach. As if they expected to stop living before they had relished them. Death steps in, in the end, and stops them. Before they have grown tired of this futile pursuit of that complete felicity which always escapes them. Alexis de Tocqueville. May 1846. Thousands of men, women, and children riding, walking, pushing. They're heading for a new life 2,500 miles away. Germans, Belgians, French, Catholics, Presbyterians, Mormons. One of the world's great mass migrations begins. The pioneer spirit is moving west. In this colossal migration to Oregon and California, America will finally define its character. When the pioneer movement began, fewer than 20,000 white Americans lived west of the Mississippi River. Ten years later, a half a million pioneers stepped off into the western wilderness. It's the American dream. Then as now, the people want an already good life to get better. They can walk 10 miles a day for up to six months straight. Some go through 10 pairs of boots each. Half are children. En route, one in five of the women are pregnant. But these aren't America's poor. Families sell farms. Save for five years to join the Exodus, risking it all. Here's best-selling author Jeanette Walls. I think if there is one episode that encapsulates the American spirit, I think it is probably the move west. Whip those mules and horses and cross those rivers and cross over those mountains to the unknown and say, "I'm leaving everything behind. I'm leaving everything that I know behind to reinvent myself." A wagon and oxen cost a minimum of five thousand dollars in today's money, but it buys a complete life support machine. The wagons carry a precious cargo, a thousand pounds of supplies, and a grub stake for their journey. Your entire new life in the West. The pioneering spirit is ingenious. Essential drinking water captured from rain on the wagon canvas. Even the oxen's dung is fuel for fires, and like today, there are tolls. The Indians charge ten dollars for road and one hundred dollars for river crossings, in modern money. But the greatest toll of all: human lives. In all, twenty thousand Americans will die reaching the West. Ten graves for every mile. 
But of all the stories to come out of the West, none has cut more deeply into the imagination of the American people than the tale of the Donner Party. This one story of suffering and death will show just how far the pioneers will go to conquer the West. Here's historian Joseph King. I think we're curious, you know, about people who, who've experienced uh, hardship, uh, who've gone through terrible ordeals. And certainly the Donner Party, you know, 87 people went through uh, a crisis the like of which few human beings have ever faced. And we're curious about that. It can tell us something, I think, about ourselves, about the limits of human experience. June, 1846. Nine brand new covered wagons rattle out of Springfield, Illinois, and head west. One of their leaders is 62-year-old George Donner. His wife, Tamsin Donner, is a school teacher. But on the trail, women must be ready to do anything. Another girl. Welcome to the world. These women were made up of the strongest fiber possible. The journey is tough, but the going is good. Tamsin Donner writes in her journal. I could never have believed we could have traveled so far with so little difficulty. Indeed, if we do not experience anything worse, I shall say the trouble is all in getting started. But as leader of the wagon train, Tamsin's husband, George Donner, is aware there's one final obstacle to their journey. The Sierra Nevada peaks up to 14,000 feet. Failure to clear the mountain passes before the first snowfalls. The consequences are terrifying. But as the Donner Party approaches Utah, George Donner makes a fateful decision, leading a splinter group off of the main party. The group now consists of 87 people, 9 families, and 16 single men. George Donner's two brothers, Jacob and James Reed, follow with their families. Donner has read one of the many popular new trail guidebooks by Lansford Hastings. We've given the Hastings cut a very careful study. Well, who is this Lansford Hastings? He's the man that found the way through. He's the one that wrote that guidebook. Hastings was trying to garner support from the government for his so-called shortcut to the West. Hastings Cutoff claimed to shave two weeks off the journey time. Lansford Hastings would not publish this immigrant's guide showing us the best route to California if he did not travel every step of it himself. Problem was, he never traveled it himself, let alone with a trail of wagons. Tomorrow, I turn my wagons to the Hastings Cutoff. Now, who will follow? Will you stand? This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we hate to cut you off like that, but we have to. And on the other side of this break, you'll find out what happened, but my goodness, it seems pretty ominous. And again, this is brought to you, our This Day in History, always by Hillsdale College. And again, if you want to learn more about Hillsdale, 
and you've already gone to college or you never plan on going to college, Hillsdale can come to you with their magnificent faculty online at hillsdale.edu. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and more on the Donner Party and their remarkable story, their harrowing story, after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we want to bring you right back to the Donner Party story and where we left off. George Donner's brother, James Reed, wrote in his diary on July 31st, 1846. Hastings' cutoff is said to be a saving of 400 miles. We are informed it is a fine level road with plenty of water and grass. But Donner's information is wrong. In fact, the shortcut adds a hundred miles to the journey. Way should be clear. Let's hope to God. The snow will close the passes in the fall, whether we are through or not. High in the Sierra Nevada, the Donner party enters the Truckee Pass. They're only 30 miles from the California plains. Then this happened. It was sundown. The weather was clear, but a large circle around the moon indicated an approaching storm. John Breen. Supplies are dangerously low. Their water supply is gone. 80 crazed and dehydrated oxen have run away. 21 other oxen are killed with poisoned arrows by Paiute Indians. From the bluffs above the river, they could hear the Paiutes laughing at their plight. (laughs) Then this happened. A broken front axle. The Donner Party stops to make repairs near Truckee Lake. Cutting timber for a new axle, George Donner gashes his hand. That night, five feet of snow falls. Five feet of new snow up there. We've lost the road. Soon, the drifts are 60 feet deep. Can we get through? No. Not anymore. The pass is completely blocked. The Donner Party will be stranded for five months. We made a fire and got something to eat. Ma spread down a buffalo rope and set up by the fire. The Indians knew we were doomed, and one of them wrapped his blanket about him and stood all night under a tree. In just three weeks, they've eaten all their food. 
the men, women, and children are all dying. Almost every day becomes someone's last. They kill their pack animals. Then they eat charred bones, boiled hides, twigs, bark, leaves, dirt, and worse. Here's George Donner's daughter, Eliza. Even the wind held its breath as the suggestion was made that were one to die, the rest might live. Cannibalism. Christmas, 1846. They eat their first human, averting their faces from each other and weeping. Only the two Indians, Luis and Salvador, refuse to eat. The bodies are cut up, flesh labeled, so people don't eat their own kin. The fourth rescue party brings out almost all survivors, but not all. The winter recorded as the worst ever in the Sierra Nevada mountains is making it almost impossible for the rescue teams to operate. The very last rescue finds a delirious Louis Kiesberg alone. Surrounded by the half-eaten dead, no one else was alive. George Donner's body is found, skull split open brain removed. Tamsin Donner's body is never found, though a survivor confessed to eating her. Two-thirds of the women and children made it through. Two-thirds of the men perished. Here's historian David McCullough. Of the 87 men, women, and children in the Donner Party, 46 survived. 41 died. Five women, 14 children, and 22 men, counting John Sutter's Indians, Lewis and Salvador. Of all the families, the Donners suffered the most. All four adults and four of the children died. The pass is renamed the Donner Pass, a testament to the hardship of the pioneers going west. News of the Donner Party tragedy made headlines around the world. Immigration to California fell off sharply. Then in January of 1848, gold was discovered in John Sutter's Creek. By late 1849, more than 100,000 people rushed to California to dig and sift near the streams and canyons where the Donner Party had suffered so much. Oh, Mary, I have not wrote you half of the trouble we have had, but I have wrote you enough to let you know what trouble is. But thank God, we are the only family that did not eat human flesh. We have left everything but I don't care for that. We have got through with our lives. Don't let this letter dishearten anybody. Remember, 
Never take no cutoffs. And hurry along as fast as you can. Virginia Reed. The Donner Party. This day in history. Great job on that, Greg. Never take no cutoffs. Advice others would heed. Again, 46 survived, 41 died. And there are so many stories like this as America made its way from east to west. Manifest Destiny didn't come without a price. And just great storytelling. And uh, last week we told the story of Rich DeVos. And we spent an hour on his life. And it was a great American life. But there was one thing we left off. And we figured it was a good time to play it right now. Uh, And it's a, a portion of a speech. He went around the country sharing with as many Americans as he could about his own country. The next time that fella comes by who picks up the garbage at your house, he's a fellow American who's using his talent to do what he can do, that he too is a part of the great mainstream of American life. I had an interesting experience because I I, I like garbage men, but I went out for four weeks in a row. This fella comes by at 6.30 in the morning because I wanted to meet him. I said, hi, how are you this morning? Just came out to tell you I appreciate your coming. He looked at me and he said, are you just getting up or are you just coming in? <laughs> Wasn't sure. I said, no, I, I just came out to say hello. He said, I appreciate you coming by. Now, if you don't think you appreciate his coming by, you just let him skip you a couple times. <laughs> and you'll find out how important he is in your life. And you know, about the fourth time I went out there, I said, I'm just come out and say hello again. I said, I, I really mean it. I appreciate your coming. Do you realize how important the work is that you do? What it does for the sanitation of this community? How it protects the health and welfare of all the people? He says, well, I'll be damned. He says, I've been picking up garbage for years, man. Nobody ever told me that. And I say to you, isn't it too bad that a fellow American who's doing what he's able to do has had no one tell him how important his work is? He says, you know, he says, you're one in a million. Well, I don't want to be one in a million. And I ask you to join me in a crusade of respectability for all your fellow Americans. I marvel at the Ph.D. who works for us, and he's a wonderful man. I look at the chemists we have, and I notice how helpless they are when it comes to emptying the wastebasket. And then I look at the people who come to work and work on the line, and I look at the school bus drivers, and we say, well, he's just a bus driver. And the other people say, well, he's just a businessman, he's just a salesman. We eradicate the words just from your vocabulary. Nobody is just to anything. He's a man or a woman doing what he knows how to do best. That's the real sign. So if a guy fixes your car, remember to greet him. Remember to thank him. And if all of us will begin to do this, we can change America. We can break down the barriers between I'm better than you. There's too much of it. And there is too much of it. And we're going to play more and more of that speech because it's one of the great ones of all time. 
Great storytelling on the Donner Party. And what great storytelling by Rich DeVos. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. our American stories and today we have something very special for you our grand executive producer Most Up High brings us an hour of radio so compelling so riveting so challenging to the status quo the seas may burn and nations may fall due to the sheer complexity and profundity of this topic here's Jesse listen do you mind if I offer you a suggestion oh I'll take any advice I can get dad there is a famous old story about a man who had to get up and speak in front of some very important people, and he was petrified. I'm with him. Yeah, but a friend gave him some advice. He says, look, when you get up in front of those VIPs, you picture them sitting there in their underwear. In their underwear? <laughs> Mike, is that true? Sure it is. Worked like a charm, too, because it made him realize that his audience was only human. I mean, you can't be very frightening in your underwear. <laughs> oh, I don't know. You should see me in mine. <laughs> underwear. We all wear them. Most of us do, anyway. Uh, boxers, briefs, bras, drawers, breeches, knickers, long johns, lingerie, brassiers, bloomers, bras, corsets, and panties. Yes, I said it. Panties. What exactly was the undergarment just referred to? Panties, Your Honor. Do you expect this subject to come up again? Yes, sir. Of course, the story goes back at least as far as Adam and Eve. You know the story, hanging out naked in the garden when a talking snake convinced them to eat forbidden fruit that made the otherwise happy couple feel painfully self-aware of their exposed reproductive organs. Enter the loincloth made of fig leaves. The first documented pair of underwear. I think. This is by no means a scientific study of underwear, and I'm prone to embellishment, so just pay attention and enjoy the ride, okay? Eventually, people graduated from the fig leaf to a cloth loincloth made of wool or linen. Now, silk loincloths were for the wealthy, but people who wore them were constantly mocked by the working-class wool and linen loincloth crowds. Try saying that ten times fast. By the Middle Ages, the loincloth had evolved into a baggy-fitting trouser-like garment that I won't try to pronounce. Fast forward a few hundred years with the invention of the cotton gin during the second half of the 18th century, and cotton fabrics were everywhere. By the early 20th century, the mass-produced undergarment industry was booming, and underwear advertising first made an appearance in the 1910s. From the battlefront to the fashion front, and there's no smokescreen here. It's a West End show, sheer nylon underwear, new-style elasticated girdles and brassiers, everything to delight the eyes of women. Not that the men were exactly bored. Here's a nightdress with a difference. Or what about this? Its title is gorgeous, and we can't think of a better. Overskirts to be worn with panties and girdles were a feature of the show. In the 1920s, manufacturers shifted emphasis from durability to comfort. Rich, heavy satin is the material in these oriental-style pajamas, completing a short glimpse of a pageant we could have watched for hours. 
But modern man's underwear was largely an invention of the 1930s. On January 19th of 1935, Cooper's Inc. sold the world's first briefs in Chicago. The company dubbed the design the Jockey, since it offered a degree of support that had previously only been available from the jockstrap. Jockey briefs proved so popular that over 30,000 pairs were sold within three months of their introduction. And thus, modern underwear as we know them today was born. Of course, there's a little more to the history of underwear than that, but I'm not here to bore you with those details. What about the underwear of the future? Do you come from a land down The market has certainly come a long way from the World's Fair in 1930. I've never seen purple underwear before, Calvin. Calvin, why why do you keep calling me Calvin? That is your name, isn't it? Calvin Klein? In fact, sales of underwear can be seen as an economic indicator. It may be silly, but former Federal Reserve Chief Alan Greenspan says underwear sales are a great economic indicator. Underwear sales are usually stable because men need them, but during really tough times, men may wait longer to buy those Tabasco trousers. When Anna Garcia's husband lost his job, new briefs went bye-bye. He would rather buy a pair of jeans or a new pair of shoes than his underwear, because that's the last thing I guess you can see. <laughs> underwear alone in the U.S. is a $15 billion plus market per year in terms of revenue. You see, the future of underwear is now. At no other point in the history of the universe have we had access to such a bountiful and diverse supply of the world's finest undergarments. New underwear startup companies like MeUndies, Tommy Johns, and Mark Weldon are booming. Joel Primus is the president and founder of Naked Brands Underwear. Um, I was filming a documentary through Central and South America, and I came across a pair of underwear in Peru, and the fabrics were incredible, and it was something that I'd never experienced before. At at that moment, I didn't think I'm going to start an underwear company, but for some reason, and call it a miracle or act, I don't know, but um, I put... I bought five pairs of this underwear and I just put them in the bottom of my backpack and I carried them around for a couple months as I was traveling. And even when I got home, I didn't do anything with them. But I was so determined to create, to make something of my life that I had heard some success stories about some some fashion startups and, and all of a sudden that thought of the underwear popped in my mind. I was like... That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to make an underwear company. Yes, underwear. Changing economies and changing lives. When we come back, the Great American Underwear Hour returns with the answer to the age-old question, boxers or briefs? Plus, more on the word panties and why so many people cringe when they hear it. Also, we'll hear from the founder of Spanx, who turned $5,000 into a billion-dollar underwear empire. All that and so much more coming up right here on Our American Underwear. Uh, Our American Stories. Did you see what's going on here? No boxers, no jockeys. The only thing between him and us is a thin layer of gabardine. Kramer, say it isn't so. Oh, it'd be so. I'm out. 
there, Jerry, and I'm loving every minute. our American stories and before we return to the great American underwear hour with Jesse we first wanted to vamp a little bit because in this segment we have what we call a hard out you see the length of the segment you're listening to right now is 11 minutes in length but our set piece that you're about to hear is only 10 minutes and two seconds long which means I've got to fill 58 seconds so that the song that gets played at the end of the segment ends at exactly 11 minutes. We're only about 30 seconds into this segment right now, which means we have about 28 seconds more to fill. This is great radio, don't you think? You're really going to enjoy the rest of this special on underwear, the entire hour-long underwear. That's right. Is it time yet? And a lot of women ask, well, what do men want from their underwear? What is important to us? From And I'll tell you what we want. We want the same thing from our underwear that we want from the women in our lives. We want a little bit of support, and we want a little bit of freedom. Yeah. Makes sense. Welcome back to the Great American Underwear Hour. Did you know that by the year 2021, Amazon is projected to generate $62 billion in annual apparel sales? Of course you didn't. According to OneClickRetail.com, the 2016 top-performing apparel items on Amazon.com were all in the underwear category. Here's the top five sellers. Haynes Men's 10-pack of crew socks at number five with 850K in sales. Haynes Men's top 10-pack of ankle socks at number four with $900,000 in sales. Haynes 5-pack of boxer briefs at number three at $1.10 million. Dickey's 6-pack of Tri-Tech crew socks at $1.15 million. And in at number one at the top five Amazon.com 2016 top performing apparel items is... A drum roll, please. Uh, can I get a drum roll, please? And in, number one on the top five of Amazon.com's 2016 top performing apparel items is Haynes Men's 10-pack Ultimate Crew Socks with $1.25 million in sales. Men's underwear has been the biggest area of growth for the online retailer in recent years as Amazon is expected to surpass Macy's, becoming the biggest apparel seller in the United States in 2017. Spanx are another brand of underwear that have risen to monumental popularity in relatively recent underwear history. Founded in Atlanta, Georgia, Spanx specializes in underwear intended to make people look thinner. I'm not fat. I'm big boned. Sarah Blakely is the founder of Spanx. She started this billion-dollar undergarment Goliath of a company with just $5,000 in savings. Sarah would find her inspiration in a place that she holds dear. 
Actually, my own butt was the inspiration because as a woman, I couldn't figure out what to wear under my white pants. So I, I don't know if Warren's had the same problem, but um, a lot of women do. And I felt I was a frustrated consumer that had no business background and no retail experience, but I knew there was a void between the traditional underwear and the heavy-duty girdle. And so that's sort of the moment that happened was so that I could wear these pants that hung in my closet. So Sarah did what anyone in a similar situation might. She took out the scissors and went to town. I just cut the feet out of control top pantyhose one day and realized that that worked better than anything I could buy on the market as far as smoothing and getting rid of any blemishes or panty lines. But they rolled up my leg all night under my pants. So I went home that night and said, I've got to figure out a way to comfortably keep this just below the knee. Necessity is the mother of invention, but capital is the father of production. Sarah Blakely worked odd jobs to get the cash she needed to start the company. I sold fax machines for seven years. It was basically uh, my only job pretty much out of college and, you know, was cold calling for a living. I got kicked out of businesses all the time for years and I, you know, did that until I cut the feet out of pantyhose. So I had $5,000 set aside in my savings and when I came up with the idea, I just went on the internet and started researching hosiery or shapewear where does this stuff get made how does it get made and that started my journey of you know Spanx I, I found out that most of it was made in North Carolina so lucky for me it was close enough to where I was living I could drive there on weekends and take vacation days and go during the week after success Sarah's attention turned to growth and teamwork the first two years, I was very involved in every aspect of selling it, marketing it, you know, trying to wear all the hats because I couldn't afford to, to hire anyone. And then I always say that when I could afford to hire my weaknesses or mm -hmm. the things I didn't enjoy as much, which are usually the same thing, I did. And I hired a fabulous CEO, and she's been with me for 11 years. And so that was a very critical moment for Spanx to recognize, okay, this is where I can, where's here, these are my gifts for the company, and here I need to... Um, find someone who can really manage the day-to-day -day and the operations, and we've been a good team. So our friend Sarah here lived happily ever after with her billion-dollar underwear empire. Here's her advice on being successful. What you don't know can become your greatest asset if you will let it, if you have the confidence to say, you know, I'm going to do it anyway, even though I haven't been taught or, you know, somebody hasn't shown me the way. And I, I actually talk about that a lot now within Spanx. I always bring it up with the team and say, if nobody showed you how to do your job, how would you be doing it? Just take a minute, go to that mental space, because nine times out of ten, you'll come up with a better way. But we're all on autopilot. A lot of times we're just doing something the way someone else showed us. So the fact that I'd never taken a business class, I had no training, I didn't know how retail worked, I think I was probably not as intimidated as I maybe should have been had I known all the research. I mean, I went into an industry that had been on a 15-year decline. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. You know, within um, a few weeks after I made my invention, I called Neiman Marcus on the phone. I didn't know any other way. And then I ran into all of these people that have their own products, and they would say, how in the world did you get into Neiman Marcus? And I would say, I called them. <laughs> and they would literally look at me like, what are you talking about? And I said, why? What do you do? And they go, well, we've been going to trade shows for six years, setting up a booth and hoping the Neiman's buyer comes by and that we get our shot. And I didn't even know there were trade shows. So that example throughout the whole process of Spanx just worked in favor in a lot of, in a lot of cases. 
Now that is truly an inspiring story. So inspiring that I forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> That's right, underwear. You know what makes me feel good? Curling up with a good book, pumping iron, maybe later. <laughs> and these little numbers. Yeah, fruit of the loom panties. Sure, they're lacy and pretty, and show a lot of leg. But the way they feel, that smooth, soft fruit of the loom cotton moves with me, hugging every little curve and the not so little curves. Now save up to $20 on select Fruit of the Loom products. Fruit of the Loom. I love them. Buck Weimer is the CEO of Undertech Corporation. My name and my title is uh, Buck Weimer, and I am the CEO of Undertech Corporation, and we manufacture under ease underwear for flatulence. Yet again, necessity being the mother of invention, it's also the mother of fun little stories like this. So I was a, a psychotherapist at a hospital where I worked, and I was recently working with some coal miners who um, went through a disaster, but they were wearing gas masks. So I figured, well, if they could filter out the toxic gases, I must be able to get a filter that could filter out the bad smells of, of flatulence. So Buck went to work on proof of concept with his odor-proof underwear. One night after some a very large Thanksgiving meal and all the gas was coming up and I was looking for a solution on how to solve this. So I noticed that all the gas was coming up towards the nostrils rather than out the side and the bottom, which is where the blankets hang over. So I thought, well, if I could direct the gas in a pair of underwear to go through maybe some sort of filtration process that that would work. Buck went on to obtain a patent on his odor-proof underwear and even appeared on the TV show Shark Tank, though none of the sharks actually invested in the product. I have absolutely no context for bringing you this story other than the fact that we're talking about underwear, and Buck makes underwear that masks the smell of your farts. When we come back, boxers are briefs, and why is the word panties so terrible? Plus, what does your underwear say about your health? We'll hear from top experts on what to look for. All that and so much more coming up on the Great American Underwear Hour. And here is the one and only singer-songwriter-comedian Rodney Carrington with the underwear song. This is Our American Stories. I went to the neighbor's yard sale to see what I could find. I found me an old pair of underwear hanging on a clothesline. Ask an old woman in a lawn chair how much you want for them drawers. She said if you're willing to touch them, them nasty things are yours. They've been hanging out in the backyard since 1985. They were my husband's favorite pair when he was still alive. They're stiff as a board and mildew, and if you wash them, they'll be fine. They got skid marks up to the waistband But they ain't no worse than mine I hope the boys at BVD Can see me wearing these They just might find it in their heart To give me a pair for free Yeah, 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 yeah Oh, they are my favorite underwear Wear them every day I use tape from scotch to repair the crotch But I get blisters that way Woo-hoo! <laughs> 
This is Our American Stories, and we continue now with our special on the life of underwear. Here's Jesse. A shotgun Willie sits around in his underwear. Biting on a bullet and pulling out all of his hair. A shotgun Willie's got all of his family there. Welcome back to the Great American Underwear Hour. Perhaps one of the most hated words in the English language is the word panties. I don't know why. In fact, I'm so uncomfortable saying the word, I'm just going to turn it over to YouTube blogger The Nerd Bird to explain it for us. I hate panties. Not the garment, the word. And it's not just me. I've noticed that women the world over dislike this word. I think the main reason why people don't really like it is because it conjures up images of being a little girl. Because when I was a child, my mom referred to my underwear as panties. As in, don't forget to change your panties. And that's why when I see it or hear it, it makes me go, oh, gross. It's in TV shows and movies. It's in songs. It's in books. Oh, it's in a lot of books. The most frustrating part is that there are way better words out there to use instead of panties, like underwear or undies, which is my personal favorite, knickers, underoos, I would like to propose that the word panties be taken out of the dictionary altogether. If we could just cease using it from here on forward, it would make me, and a lot of other women, pretty damn happy. I think we can all agree to that. While we might not have the ability to strike the word panties from the American lexicon, at least we can strike the word from the rest of this show. The Great American Underwear Hour will henceforth abolish the term panties for the remainder of the broadcast. Starting now. Now that we've got that out of the way, it's time to answer that age-old question of boxers or briefs. Now, before we give you the answer, let's see what people on the street have to say about this debate when the guys at UnderwearExpert.com asked that very same question in the streets of Hollywood. Hey, man, what's your name? Eli. Eli, how old are you? I'm 18. Al Underwood. Al Underwood, how old are you, Al? Uh, 52. 52? Chris. Chris, and how old are you, Chris? Uh, 28. John. John, all right, what do you do, John? Teacher. You're a teacher. What do you teach? Uh, P. I'm a uh, marketing consultant for the art of shaming. I work at Pizza Hut. What are you wearing today? Boxers or briefs? Boxers or briefs? Boxers or briefs? Boxer briefs. Why? Uh, they uh, they keep everything cool, separated, you know, snug. Boxer briefs. Boxer briefs. Why? Because it's still kind of uh, long and it's not embarrassing like tidy whities but it keeps everything secure. Boxer briefs. Boxer briefs? Yeah. Why is that? Because they're snug, they look great when you take them off, then girls go, ooh. I got on some briefs. You got some briefs? Yeah, the boxes kind of let everything swing too freely. Here it comes. <laughs> Boom. Boxer nice. briefs. Yeah. Boxer briefs. All right, what brand is that? Rockaware? Uh, I think so. Is that your favorite brand? No, no, no. Favorite brand? Calvin Klein. Hanes. Hanes? Yeah. Just go to. I like all my undergarments I don't spend any money on. You got a favorite brand? Uh, Ralph Lauren, yeah. Ralph Lauren. You know, keep, keep my guys cool, you know, and uh, just really freely flowing. Uh, they're very comfortable. Some girls see a difference. I really don't care. Uh, jungle Green is my favorite, yeah. Excellent. What does that say about you? I don't know. I'm a wild man. <laughs> I like it clean and neat. It's perfect. So what do men prefer in terms of sales? Boxers or briefs? Well, it turns out the answer is both. The boxer brief hybrid is the dominant form of men's underwear with a 40% market share. Jonathan Shokrian is founder of e-commerce underwear company Me Undies, and he just might have one of the most interesting jobs on the planet. 
Designing and marketing underwear, he also takes pictures of women in their panties. Someone said panties. I know that I said we wouldn't use the word panties anymore in the broadcast, but I lied. Sorry. Someone said panties. In 2011, at the age of 25, with $400,000 of startup funds raised from friends, family, and angel investors, the MeUndies founder set out on a mission to disrupt the way underwear is manufactured and purchased. I'm Jonathan Shokrian, and I'm the founder and CEO of MeUndies.com. When I was 18, I moved to Dallas for six years to go to school and work for my father's real estate company. First, I was just really doing management. And that literally had to do with anyone calling and complaining about a roof leak to a, you know, a backed up sink or you know, all the problems that you deal with in that regard. But then eventually I learned a great deal on how to manage people, how to like keep costs low and run a company. While I was in high school, I had a cousin who would sell electronics wholesale. I came up with the idea of taking his product and listing it on eBay. We were one of the top 200 sellers on eBay. Once he figured out kind of how to run it, he quickly kind of got rid of me. So it was a really early lesson on like how business works and the good and the bad that comes with it. Jonathan Shokrian and his company, Me Undies, is currently selling around 5 million units per year. So far, we've heard from several successful underwear entrepreneurs in this hour-long celebration of undergarments known as the Great American Underwear Hour. Lawrence Ferlinghetti is an American poet best known for A Coney Island of the Mind from 1958, a collection of poems that has been translated into nine languages with sales of more than one million copies. And when would be a better time than now than to hear his poem about underwear? Underwear, yeah, underwear. That's a serious subject, underwear. I haven't, I, I uh, didn't get much sleep last night thinking about underwear. Have you ever stopped to consider underwear in the abstract? When you really dig into it, some shocking problems are raised. Underwear is something we all have to deal with. Everyone wears some kind of underwear. Even Indians wear underwear. Even Cubans wear underwear. The Pope wears underwear, I hope. The governor of Louisiana wears underwear. I saw him on TV. He must have had tight underwear. He squirmed a lot. Underwear can really get you in a bind. You've seen the underwear ads for men and women, so alike but so different. Women's underwear holds things up. Men's underwear holds things down. (laughs) Or vice versa. Underwear is one thing men and women have in common. Underwear is all we have between us in the end. You've seen the three-color pictures with crotches and circles to show the areas of extra strength and three-way stretch, promising full freedom of action? Don't be deceived. It's all based on a two-party system, which doesn't allow much freedom of choice the way things are set up. America in its underwear struggles through the night. Underwear controls everything in the end. Take foundation garments, for instance. They're really fascist forms of underground government, making people believe something but the truth, telling you what you can or can't do. Did you ever try to get around a girdle? Perhaps nonviolent action is the only answer. Did Gandhi wear a girdle? Did Lady Macbeth wear a girdle? Was that why Macbeth murdered sleep? And that spot she was always rubbing.
Modern Anglo-Saxon ladies must have huge gill complexes. Always washing and washing and washing out damn spot. Underwear with spots, very suspicious. Underwear with bulges, very shocking. Underwear on clothesline, a great flag of freedom. Someone has escaped his underwear, maybe naked somewhere. Help! But don't worry, everybody's still hung up in it. There won't be no real revolution. And poetry's still the underwear of the soul. And underwear still covering a multitude of faults in the geological sense. Strange sedimentary stones, inscrutable cracks. If I were you, I'd keep aside an oversized pair of winter underwear. Do not go naked into that good night. And in the meantime, keep calm and warm and dry. No use stirring yourselves up prematurely over nothing. Move forward with dignity and invest. Don't get emotional, and death shall have no dominion. There's plenty of time, my darling. Are we not still young and easy? Don't shout. And you're listening to the Great American Underwear Hour on Our American Stories. When we come back, every year, people in New York City strip down to their underwear to ride the subway. All that and so much more coming up as we conclude the Great American Underwear Hour. This is Our American Stories. Standing in her underwear Looking down from a hotel room The nightfall will be coming soon oh, This is Our American Stories And leave it to Jesse to find Tom Petty Saying the word underwear And now back to our executive underwear master Jesse Edwards If you're still listening to this broadcast, I'm sure you didn't wake up this morning expecting to know this much about underwear. And if you're just joining us, welcome to the Great American Underwear Hour, brought to you by Our American Stories. We've heard from one rich young American entrepreneur after another who went out and made millions by entering online subscription-based craft underwear sales. Hipster millennials sitting around air-conditioned offices from sea to shining sea, cashing in and chopping away massive returns from big underwear like Victoria's Secret, Hanes, and Fruit of the Loom. Out with the old and in with the new. Right? Well, not quite. You see, the world's first recyclable underwear is a new startup called Reundies. How it works is quite simple. Order a pair of the world's most comfortable underwear, and they'll arrive faster than you can say sustainability. Wear them, live in them, be yourself in them. Then, when you're ready for a new pair, just stick them back in the package, slap that prepaid shipping label on it, and send them on back. You don't even have to wash them. That's right, Billy. And in fact, I think your package is arriving right now. I should probably point out that this underwear startup is completely fictitious. But that should tell you something. There are so many underwear startup companies in America right now that these people spend weeks of their time making this fake startup campaign ad. 
There are currently over 250 underwear startup company projects just on Kickstarter.com alone. Welcome to the golden age of underwear. But not all underwear is created equal. Not all underwear is fun and games. A lot of intriguing details you're about to hear that might have come out during a trial but didn't because the underwear bomber pleaded guilty. These agents say they don't often get a chance to interrogate a suicide bomber, especially one like this. Yes, we live in a day and age where underwear can take down an airplane. And they can even take down a congressman. Like former congressman from New York's 9th District, Anthony Weiner. When he was caught passing around pictures of himself in his underwear to various women online, he had this to say to Rachel Maddow. Look, I, I, we don't know f for sure. The photograph doesn't look f familiar to me, but a lot of people who have been looking at this stuff on our behalf are cautioning me that, you know, stuff gets manipulated, stuff gets, you know, you can, you can, you can change a photograph, you can manipulate a photograph, you can doctor a photograph. And so I don't want to say with certitude it maybe didn't start out being a photograph of mine and now looks as something different, or maybe it was something that was from another account. <laughs> that what we call a terrible lie. You know, underwear is kind of a funny thing. Some of us would rather be caught dead than to have pictures of us in our underwear going viral like disgraced former Congressman Anthony Weiner here. And then there are these people. Dozens stripped down to their underwear and it was all caught on camera. People gathered for the annual No Pants Subway Ride on the Hudson Yards 34th Street subway station. The movement started 16 years ago. It always brings tourists to the area. With temps in the 20s, this year was certainly one of the coldest. But hey, that didn't stop the No Pants Party. This is my first time. I don't know. My, my, friend, my friend dragged me in this. She was like, you want to take pants off in the train? I was like, why not? Yeah, why not, right? Well, the event is also held in other major cities, including Boston, Sydney, Paris, and Shanghai. Now, one might think it would be illegal to walk around town in your skimpies, but it turns out that there are no real laws to speak of, at least on a federal level. In Flint, Michigan, however, city law states that low-riding pants that expose underwear is a Class B offense. There are some more obscure and unenforceable laws on the books regarding underwear across the states. In San Francisco, it's illegal to wash your car with used underwear. Nothing about washing your car with new underwear, though. In Cleveland, women are forbidden from wearing shiny leather shoes just in case men see the reflections of their underwear. In Minnesota, it is technically against the law to hang male and female underwear together on the same clothesline. And that is just the United States. In Thailand, it's illegal to leave the house without any underwear on. Saudi Arabia's feared morality police won't punish men who walk around in their underwear, but women still face imprisonment if they violate strict laws on women's dress codes. But back here in the States, good luck going online or driving downtown without seeing an ad or a billboard with someone posing seductively in a pair of tight-fitting designer underwear. One underwear company in particular has made people all hot and bothered on more than one occasion over the years. Calvin Klein. You know the ads, those black and white images, extremely attractive people posing with little to nothing at all. I always think of our clothes as being sensual and modern, but when you start showing the body, well then you can have some fun. And that's the man himself, Calvin Klein, an American fashion designer of Hungarian Jewish ancestry born in the Bronx is currently worth about $720 million. I've always known from the time I was, I mean, honestly, about five or six years old, exactly what I wanted to do. My mother loved clothes, 
and she dressed us really well. And my grandmother made clothes for people. By the time it was time for high school, I knew it was going to be fashion. And then I knew I'd go on to a college that specialized in fashion as well and couldn't wait to get out into the industry. Like so many other entrepreneurs we hear from on this show, young Calvin Klein didn't want anybody telling him what to do. We also get to hear about his very first job. My father was a businessman and my parents discussed business all the time. I always had a sense that I would want to be the designer, but I'd want to be able to control what I was designing and not have the person who was manufacturing the product tell me what to do. On my first job, the man who hired me, he said, you could have a nice two or three million dollar business. And I thought to myself, I don't think so. Um, uh, I, I, I think I want to do something uh, bigger. Like any and every artist or musician, underwear designers like Calvin Klein must also find inspiration somewhere. I was inspired by the American woman who I thought was modern, young. She wanted a career, she wanted a family, she had a family. She did all of these things and she needed clothes that fit that lifestyle. Well, as it turned out, there were women all over the world that were doing the same thing. Back in the day, Calvin Klein found his inspiration with a young woman named Brooke Shields. One of the first commercials that we did, Brooke Shields, the camera moved very slowly across her body and then comes in on her face and she says, you know what comes between me and my Calvins. You want to know what comes between me and my Calvins? Nothing. Nothing. Then it was shocking. We were thrown off the air on television overnight. And next thing, front page of newspapers, full page of Brooke Shields. We got so much free publicity. And that was Calvin Klein, underwear royalty. And you're listening to the Great American Underwear Hour. As promised, we're now going to hear from an actual underwear model. Now calm down, calm down. We all gotta be adults about this now. Martha Hunt has been a Victoria's Secret angel since 2015. I am in crunch time right now. I'm really amping up the workouts leading up to the show. I would say about three weeks leading up to the show, we really amp it up. And we'll plan like private sessions with one another, which is really cute. And I think it's just so empowering to be a part of a girl group that, you know, we need to work out for work, but we also can enjoy doing it together. It's always a lot of fun working out with the girls. Oh, well, that was a bit underwhelming. Well, now we're going to learn about how your underwear can save your life with Dr. Oz. Do a lot of embarrassing things in the past, but this might be my most mortifying request yet. Today, I have asked everyone in our audience to bring in a pair of their underwear. Now, Dr. Oz will walk us through his underwear test, step by step. Let's begin. So question number one is, does your underwear have less elasticity than when you bought it? The answer, everybody, I want you all doing it up there, should be no. Because stretched out elastic means your butt is getting bigger. Next. Question number two. Is the backside more than three inches wide? Come on, turn your underwear around, stick in there. Backside three inches wide, everyone look in there? Right. The answer, the guys don't have to check. This is more for the women. 
The answer should be yes. I'm not going to touch that one. Next. Question number three. Everyone's going to check this out now. I want you all checking on yourselves. Is your underwear too tight? And the answer to this also should be no. All right, that one's easy. Nothing tight. Got it. Next. This is the final question. And for many of you, it will be the most important question and perhaps the most embarrassing one to look for. Does your underpants have any yellow stains? Oh, all right, stop. Stop. It's quite enough. Thank you, Dr. Oz. Oof. That escalated quickly. Well, I think that just about wraps up the Great American Underwear Hour. Boy, we've learned a lot about underwear today. From the humble beginnings as a loincloth in the Garden of Eden to the Chicago World's Fair of 1935, where Jockey was born. From the top five underwear sellers on Amazon to the top of the underwear industry itself, with the story of Spanx founder Sarah Blakely, who started it all with a $5,000 investment. From the age-old question of boxers versus briefs to underwear poetry, from bad to good, with the underwear bomber to the priceless underwear health tips from Dr. Oz. Yellow stains. We even heard from a Victoria's Secret underwear model. Not bad. On behalf of all of us here at Our American Stories, thanks for coming along with us on this crazy and magical journey that we will forever know as the Great American Underwear Hour.